Hey everyone, this is your host Spooky Bruce with a warning. This is a podcast about horror movies and social issues, discussing topics that some may find disturbing. And, being a podcast about horror movies, spoilers will abound. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to the show. It's on, it's on. There's no sound. Play with the rabbit ears. Hey everyone, welcome to What Are We Afraid Of, a podcast that examines horror movies and what they can tell us about our society and ourselves. I'm your host, Spooky Bruce. Thank you so much for listening. Since this is the very first episode of What Are We Afraid Of, let me tell you a tiny bit about myself. I'm a sociologist in training at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. And as you've probably, hopefully, guessed by now, a lifelong avid horror movie fan. I've been a fan ever since in a moment of unsupervised late-night TV viewing at about five years old. I saw the last segment of the 1975 anthology film Trilogy of Terror. The fetish doll tormenting Karen Black terrified me. And it hooked me. This can't be happening! This can't be happening! I've been chasing that high ever since. I don't know how much horror I've watched since that moment in about 1983, because I didn't start keeping count until about two years ago, but in that time, since 2019, I've watched over 500 feature films, short films, and TV shows. Just about anything horror that I could throw into my eyeballs. As I've gotten older, I realize these movies aren't just trying to scare me they're saying something to me about myself and the society we live in. It's that cracked, bloody mirror that horror holds up to society, reflecting our personal and collective anxieties, that inspired my interest in sociology. Every few years, the more mainstream media and film critics rediscover horror as a genre Shocked to find out that the genre exists beyond exploitation, cheap scares, and gore. They are amazed horror actually has something to say. We saw this most recently with critically acclaimed films like Jordan Peele's Get Out, Robert Eggers' The Witch, and Ari Aster's Hereditary. And it gave us headlines like Esquire's The 2020s Were the Decade When Horror Got Smart. And these critics invented terms like prestige horror, and elevated horror, and the social thriller to reconcile the fact that they actually enjoyed a horror film. And so they could pretend these particular films were somehow different from the movies they so often regulate to the critical and cultural gutter. The very idea of elevated horror, and the inability, or to be frank, outright refusal, of critics to recognize horror as a vital part of our cultural conversation spits in the face, as an article on Slashfilm put it, of the genre and the masterpieces it has given us. Every horror fan, and most social scientists, can tell you that horror, as a genre, be it literature or in film, has always acted as this social mirror. 
we can go back to 1897's Dracula, which, with its Eastern European villain literally placing Transylvanian soil in the UK and preying upon proper British women, reflected British fears of invasions via immigration. Those themes wouldn't be out of place now in American society, and similar themes can be found in Todd Browning's 1931 adaptation of the book. We can go a little further in time to H.P. Lovecraft, his works such as The Call of Cthulhu reflecting an anxiety of rapid technological and scientific development, while his stories such as The Horror at Red Hook contain very ugly attitudes about immigration. Getting to 1933, King Kong, which is a horror film and one of the best examples of the cosmic horror subgenre, contains colonialist and racial attitudes of the period clashing with an anti-colonialist message about the dangers of those attitudes, albeit the dangers to Western society in the rebellion of the titular character. 1954's Invasion of the Body Snatchers is not just about our anxiety over communism and the Cold War, but the threat of social change in the supposedly idyllic post-war America. In 1968, Rosemary's Baby came out just after the legalization of birth control pills and arguments over the body autonomy of women. The 1970s gave us Alien, which, along with featuring a perfect organism hunting and breeding inside the crew, reflected a growing dissatisfaction with capitalism and resentment toward the uncaring corporations we work for. An alien came out just a few years after miners in Harlan, Kentucky went on strike over working conditions and black lung. And so on and so on into the 21st century, and we have Get Out about racism, casual and otherwise, hiding behind benevolence, smiles, and polite tones. That cracked mirror of horror provides us a tool to recognize our collective anxieties we might not realize we have gives us a way to articulate them that we might not otherwise have, and it helps relieve those anxieties. For example, young adults realizing that they are indeed mortal creatures may seek out horror as a way to demystify death. Also, horror gives us a safe space to discuss issues and emotions we may find uncomfortable or negative. For example, in an interview with Vanity Fair, author and educator Tanana Reeve Du mentions Get Out as making it quote, okay to discuss the third rail of racism as the monster, end quote. Being able to recognize these anxieties and having an outlet to relieve them has a tremendous benefit for us. A 2020 study that I'll link in the show notes found that horror movie fans and those with what they deemed morbid curiosity had greater mental resilience and preparedness during the COVID-19 pandemic than did the general population. The researchers theorized that horror films act as a simulation of real-world stresses and threats, allowing us to model responses to them. Horror, according to the researchers, quote, allows the audience to explore an imagined version of the world at very little cost. Through fiction, people can learn how to escape dangerous predators, navigate novel social situations, and practice their mind-reading and emotional regulation skills. Experiencing negative emotions in a safe setting, such as during a horror film, might help individuals hone strategies for dealing with fear and more calmly deal with fear-eliciting situations in real life." End quote. 
For example, any horror fan worth their salt, and even casual fans, will have at some point discussed what they do in a zombie apocalypse. Their bug out plan, the best place to hold up, what kind of resources to gather, who they'd want in their crew, etc. The researchers actually use this example in the study. Such plans don't just prepare you for a zombie apocalypse, but natural disasters and civil emergencies as well. But what makes horror, horror? Defining horror is the whole point of this introductory episode because it will inform, so to speak, the movies I'll look at going forward. And they may not be movies that are strictly traditionally defined as horror. It's easy to tell when a movie is a drama, science fiction, or a comedy, regardless if that comedy makes you laugh. But often, it's not so easy to tell if a movie is horror. Its borders are nebulous, and sometimes intrude on the territories of other genres. Perhaps it does that more than any other genre. Back in April 2021, Guardian writer Elle Hunt caused a massive stir on Twitter when she posted a poll asking whether 1979's Alien is science fiction or horror. When respondents overwhelmingly said it was horror, Hunt went on to argue it couldn't possibly be horror because it has elements of science fiction, namely, it's set in space. As was explained repeatedly in the responses, it's not either or, it's actually both. Horror overlaps into the sci-fi and vice versa. So what makes a movie horror? Is a movie horror because it's scary? And this is something that is hotly, viciously debated within the horror community. Friends are lost, enemies are made over this kind of discussion. A common complaint on social media about any particular movie marketed as horror is that it can't possibly be horror because it's not quote-unquote scary. But let me tell you this, unequivocally, a movie does not have to scare you to be horror. Scary is subjective. What you find scary is dependent on your status in life and in society, such as your personal experiences, your age, your race, your religion, your place in time, if you're a parent, your economic status and stability, your geographic location, and so forth. All of those and more inform what you find scary. What's scary can be personal and it can be communal, but it's never universal. For example, I am a heterosexual white male raised by evangelical parents in a working class suburb in Kentucky living in the 21st century. A black man, whether he is raised in similar circumstances to me or not, is going to find Get Out frightening in a way that I don't, and quite frankly, can't. That doesn't mean I can't appreciate it as a horror movie or understand why it is scary to someone else with different circumstances than me. It's just that it will not have the same impact. Someone living 100 years ago, even with similar circumstances to me, is going to have different fears than me. Someone in the LGBT community is going to find particular things in horror scary that I won't, and vice versa. Someone with less economic stability than me will find things scary that I don't, and vice versa, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Another common complaint among horror fans, and another example of how horror is not universal, is that horror movies aren't scary anymore. And the simple reason for this is that they grew up. 
children and young adults tend to be more easily frightened than full-grown adults, and thus more likely to be frightened by a horror movie. A 2019 study, also linked in the show notes, concluded that as we age and become more knowledgeable of our world, the likelihood a movie scares us decreases, while our overall enjoyment of horror increases. To a certain point, the older we get, about the age of 35, we start enjoying horror less. For the most part, I guess I'm a bit of an outlier. I'm 43. My personal enjoyment has only increased. Not only does a movie not have to scare you to be horror, there are movies that are scary that aren't classified as horror. Take, for instance, the made-for-TV film The Day After. The movie depicts the lead-up to and aftermath of a nuclear confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. Like a test, sort of. Like a warning? They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? It was terrifying when I watched it in a moment of questionable parenting at age 5 in 1983. Watching it to prepare for this episode, it still is frightening. Though what I find frightening about it now versus 1983 has changed. Back then, it was the scenes of the bombs going off. Now, it's the utter futility of humanity and the hopelessness that scares me. Either way, if you ask me for a list of the movies I find the scariest, the day after is going at the top, and we can throw on its British companion film, Threads. But the day after is not considered a horror movie, technically. It's marketed and classified as a drama. Though, I would argue it is horror, but that's beside the point. And to further illustrate how your status, time, and place informs what you find scary, the day after is scary to me because I grew up during the Cold War, with that nuclear sort of Damocles, as President Kennedy put it, over the heads of me and everyone I knew. The end of the world was a very real threat. The events depicted in the movie could happen with just a few phone calls. Everything could disappear in atomic fire. But I doubt the day after has the same impact for anyone born after 1991. If being scary doesn't make a movie horror, then what does? Now, what I'm about to say here may not be the most original take on what makes horror horror. You may have heard something similar before. Stephen King outlines something along these lines with his three types of horror. The terror, the horrifying, and the gross out. What follows is just how I define horror, which will inform this podcast going forward. The answer to the question of what makes horror, horror, is threefold. The first and most important element is intention. It's the sustained intent of the filmmaker throughout the film to instill a sense of horror, that is, shock and revelation, in the viewer that makes a movie a horror film. We can illustrate intention and how it works by comparing scenes from two movies by the same director that feature similar situations, Jaws and Jurassic Park, both by Steven Spielberg. In Jurassic Park, we see the lawyer, 
eaten by the T-Rex. In Jaws, we see a young boy, Alex Kintner, eaten by the shark. Both these scenes, though they feature a human killed by an animal, play much different from one another because of the intention of the director. In Jurassic Park, the lawyer practically salivates over the money the park stands to rake in, unconcerned with the potential dangers that are brought up. When the T-Rex attacks, the lawyer abandons the SUV, leaving the children behind to hide in an outhouse. He's sitting on the toilet, praying before he's bloodlessly crushed and torn apart in the dinosaur's teeth. It's almost comedic. The scene plays out as some sort of divine retribution, the lawyer being punished for his greed and his cowardice. We're okay with his death because he deserves it. Everyone hates lawyers anyway. Later, when his body parts are found scattered around the site, it's treated as a morbid joke. But in Jaws, little Alex Kittner does nothing to deserve what happens to him. He's minding his own business. He's just being a kid. And we watch him struggle and scream for what's only a few seconds, but feels like an uncomfortably long time. The water erupts around him, red with his blood. We see as the water is evacuated, his mother frantically searching for him. We know what's happened to him, and we have to watch his mother come to that realization. The scene ends with the torn inflatable he was on washing ashore, the bloody water his only remains. We are meant to be horrified by the death of Ox Kittner, but not the lawyer. Intention must be sustained. There are a lot of movies that have horrific elements in a scene or two, but don't sustain the horror throughout the entire film. For instance, in the original Toy Story, for instance, in the original Toy Story, Sid's Frankenstein and mutant toys are presented as horrifying, a threat, when we, through Buzz and Woody, first encounter them. But no one in their right mind would call Toy Story horror, because the point of the movie is not to horrify the audience outside of that particular scene at that particular moment. Horrifying is not the same as scary, though they do often go hand in hand. You can be shocked or disgusted by something without being frightened by it. If you see a mangled corpse, you may want to vomit from disgust, but you won't necessarily be scared by the body. You won't see it as a threat to you. If you've ever changed a diaper, you can understand this concept. We can also look at the movie The Thing to further illustrate this. When Norris's head peels away from his body, sprouting legs and trying to scuttle away, it's an awesome effect. It's so gross, and it stands up 40 years later. But while being gross, at no point does it trigger a fear response in me. You gotta be fucking kidding. And you don't actually have to feel emotions like revulsion for something to be horrifying. You can understand on an intellectual level that something you are viewing is horrific. And whether or not the movie does succeed in horrifying you, that is, shocking or revolting you, on any level, is beside the point. As long as there's that sustained intention to horrify, the movie is horror. From intention flow the two other elements necessary for horror, dread and revelation. Dread is the sense that something is wrong. It's the anticipation that something bad is going to happen very soon. Revelation 
is a violation, the thing that should not be, something that upsets the natural order or your understanding of the natural order. If we look at this in real-world terms with something we may all face at some point in our lives, dread is waiting for test results after going to the doctor with a nagging issue like a cough. Revelation is getting the results back and discovering you have a terminal disease like stage 4 lung cancer. Your order has been upset in that moment. Your life is being violated. We can go back to our example of Alex Kittner from Jaws to further explain dread and revelation. Dread is watching from the shark's perspective as it moves unseen beneath the swimming children. John Williams' suspenseful score playing, swelling as the animal closes in on a victim who is unaware of the danger below them. But we know at any moment that person just a kid may die. Revelation is the moment when the shark eats Alex Kintner. While the shark is part of the natural world, it becomes the thing that should not be in that moment. It is upsetting what we understand to be the natural order, that we are supreme over nature, the top of the food chain. But it reminds us that we are not separate from the natural world, but a part of it. We are no different than animals. We are seen as food. It violates our beliefs that children do not and should not die. It violates our beliefs that things like this don't happen to innocent people. Revelation is where horror lives. It is the supreme moment when the truth of our world is unveiled. Dread and revelation are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Without dread, the revelation will have little impact. Dread is what invests you in the revelation. And they need not be one-off things either. Dread and revelation can happen multiple times throughout the film. And while dread usually precedes revelation, they don't necessarily have to come in any particular order. Still looking at Jaws, revelation happens at the beginning when the shark mauls the skinny dipping Chrissy. And that moment helps build dread throughout the rest of the film, knowing that there is a shark hunting people. Alex Kittner's death further builds upon that dread as well. If a child isn't safe, no one is safe. And here's some other examples of dread and revelation in films. Dread is watching your friend choke during a meal in obvious pain and distress. Revelation is when the alien gestating inside him bursts from his chest, spraying you with blood. Dread is seeing your friends die one by one, not knowing who could be next. Revelation is discovering your boyfriend is the killer, and you were his target all along. Revelation is the dead returning to life and eating the flesh of the living. Dread is hiding inside a farmhouse, hoping they don't get in. This is how I define what makes a movie a horror film. Intention, dread, and revelation. I'm sure you can see how that horror, as I define it, is a very broad genre and can include movies not traditionally considered horror, such as a made-for-TV nuclear war drama. 
that definition is going to inform what movies and the social issues infused in them that I'm going to cover on What Are We Afraid Of? And that's where I'm going to leave you for this episode. This is going to be a monthly podcast, so I'll see you, or more accurately, you'll be hearing my voice, about this time next month. In the meantime, I may post audio reviews of new movies if I feel so inclined between full episodes, so be on the lookout for those. If you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at MrSpookyBruce and on the Slasher app at SpookyBruce. So I hope you'll be joining us again next month, and thank you so much for listening. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire.